It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Robert Colville, CapEx's editor. So welcome to the CapEx podcast. We're here at the Margaret Thatcher Conference on Security with Anne Applebaum, who is one of the leading uh, foreign policy commentators in the world, really. Uh, she's a, she writes for the Washington Post, but she's also a long-standing Anglophile. I'm not just an Anglophile, or rather, I'm not really an Anglophile, I'm actually British. I have a, I have a British passport, um, and actually, in order to get it, I had to do something that most British people don't ever have to do, which is swear an oath to the Queen and her heirs and successors. And also to familiarise yourself with a sort of slightly random assortment of facts about uh, the UK, which, again, actually, no one in the UK would, uh, would Actually, have when, I, when I did it, which was some years ago, you didn't have to do it. And in, after doing it, I wrote an article that I happened to know was, you know, was, was bothered a lot of people in which I said, how come I just became a citizen of the UK and nobody asked me any questions? And it was actually after that, later on, that they brought in the questions. And also the citizenship ceremonies, which are really sort of quite a lovely yes, thing. Yes, when I did it, it was, there was no citizenship ceremony. It was, a, it, was a, it was a kind of bureaucratic office, and somebody then sent me a passport in the mail. So, so you don't see any con- conflict between having a British identity and an American identity? N- not at all. I mean, I've, I'm, I'm very happy to consider myself a citizen of the transatlantic alliance or of the West, um, broadly understood, and you know that doesn't that means that I'm very happy to be part of you know very connected to Poland as well. Because your husband, of course, but, yes, is, of course, my husband is a is a Polish politician. He was foreign minister and defense minister. Speaking about about the, I mean the, the topic of this com- conference is is the West and um, and what it stands for and, and the and the, and the threats to it. And obviously one of the bit the big ones, one which you've written about um, quite extensively, is is Russia. Yes, um, I believe Russia is a threat in a. Um, not as a military threat, uh, as it was historically understood to be, but is a much stronger ideological threat than we normally consider it to be, um, precisely because one of Russia's most important foreign policy goals, indeed the kind of foundation of its grand strategy right now, is its desire to destroy the West. Or you know, maybe that's a, that sounds a little too apocalyptic, but anyway, to undermine existing Western institutions, which Russia finds to be a political problem. And that includes the European Union, and it includes NATO, um, and generally the, the, the system of alliances that have kept the West you know, unified since the Second World War. Yes, I mean, as, as Henry Kissinger said earlier today, Russia sort of feels that its security depends on the insecurity of those around it. Yes, and it, and it understands that in a, in a very kind of postmodern way. So, it, so it's not just that it, you know, builds up 
you know, military um, you know, military assets along the borders, it also feels the need now to intervene directly in um, Western politics and, and very specifically and in a very kind of customized way in the democracy and the democratic debates in pretty much almost every European country. Um, some places they're more successful or more noticeable than others, but you know, whether it involves funding the far right or funding the far left or encouraging them in other ways or using... Um, social media, which was really the, they were really the first country to understand that, you know, the fact that political debate now takes place mostly on social media, it means that it's uniquely easy to manipulate for outsiders. Um, and whether it's, whether it's using that, I mean, they, they've, they see this as their, because this is such an important political and foreign policy goal for them, they've, they, they've, they've really made themselves into the experts at doing that. Um, and we've been very, very slow to catch up on this. I mean, I, if I was slightly ahead of the curve, um, it's because I, I've lived a lot of the last couple of decades in Eastern Europe, and I saw them do it. I mean, I saw them do it in Poland. I saw them do it in Ukraine. Georgia. Um, Georgia, you know, but um, so not just military intervention, but also kind of much, a much deeper um, political intervention. And then, of course, when they began doing it in the West, um, I, I, you know, initially thought it wouldn't work. Um, and when I watched it start in the U.S. election campaign last year, I thought, well, this is, you know, it's impossible. And then, of course, it did work, or at least it had some impact. And so I think we need to take it much more seriously as a, as a threat. And it, it, I mean, it, it does feel extraordinary that there's been no blowback. I mean, as, as we're meeting reports have been published that Barack Obama sort of had prepared retaliation measures and just, you know, chickened out of, of doing anything. Well, you know, I think it's actually deeper than that. I also saw those um, reports in the last few days, but it's really deeper than that. It was that Obama, which which really he had in common with everybody, you know, including, you know, this country and the, you know, the, the, the center right, the center left. It's not unique to the American Democrats. He had this absolute inability to take Russia seriously. You know, the, the sort of the idea in everybody's head after 1989 was, OK, we got rid of that problem. Now it's over. Let's move on. I, you know, whether you want to move on to do climate change or whether you want on to do, you know, the Middle East or whatever it is you want to think about next, you know, we can now park Russia in the past and anybody who is worried about it, we can call them a cold warrior or, you know, you're backwards looking. The, and, the foreign office in the UK, suddenly speaking Russian becomes a Exactly, you know, becomes a liability, you know, who cares anymore? And it suddenly disappears as an issue. And, you know, the problem was is that while we thought Russia wasn't a threat, you know, and while we weren't fighting a cold war anymore, they still were. Um, and they, the, 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 the current Russian state, as, it, you know, as it's constituted, sees, I mean, genuinely sees Western democracy and the ideas of Western democracy as a threat to it. You know, so not a threat to the Russian nation or the Russian people. You know, we don't, you know, we don't have, um, you know, they're not seriously worried by, our, by, by NATO or by our military power, which is um, actually pretty weak in Europe. Um, but they see sort of the idea of Western democracy as a, as a threat. This is, by the way, why they were so upset about the Ukrainian revolution in 2014. You know, what did that look like to them? Lots of people on the street shouting anti-corruption slogans and waving the EU flag. And for them, this was, you know, you know this, is, this is exactly what Putin is afraid of because this, these are the values, you know, the EU, which for them, you know, the Ukrainians means, you know, the rule of law and the idea of, you know, a fairer and more just society and so on, plus... Plus, an objection to the current regime is, is corrupt. You know, this is the combination that the Russian regime is most afraid of. But also, the Russian regime has told its pe- to stay in power has told its people that it faces external threats, so it needs to exactly. Amp up the so, so, in addition to that, I mean, Ukraine made a very useful enemy at least for a while until people sort of got bored of that war, and then they went and moved to Syria, where um, they could have another enemy, which is 
um, although even that's complicated. But yeah, I mean, they, so they, yes, they do need external threats, but, but, but don't underestimate the degree to which our kind of, you know, even though we don't really value it anymore or we're d dubious about it, but the Western democracy narrative is powerful enough to, to worry um, a government like Putin's. So you said we don't believe in it as much as we did, and I think that's probably right. But I mean, why is that? I mean, looking back, so we, we, you, when you first, sort of, when you were at Oxford University, say, I mean, did, did this feel like a different country in terms of it, its belief in itself or its belief in its values? I mean, you know, in a way, the Cold War made a lot of things easier for everybody because there was an easy, you know, you could easily see the relationship, you know, between belief in Britain and belief in British democracy. Um, and you could see that together with a belief in the West and an opposition to, you know, Soviet-style totalitarianism. You know, there, was, there seemed to be no breaks. You know, there was no, you know, there, there, there were no contradictions between that kind of foreign policy and that, you know, self-belief. Um, I think in the present, the world is more complicated. Um, in, among other things, you know, the emergence of Russia and of China and of other parts of the world as very important financial and business centers mean that, you know, it's not like the Soviet Union, anybody ever made any money there in the 1980s, you know, or China, actually, for that matter. And the, the financial power of other parts of the world has changed people's relative feeling. You know, well, maybe yeah. we need to get along with them. Maybe it, we need, to, we need to deal with them. If you're an African country now, you don't need to sign up to all that nonsense about human rights if right. you want, because you can, because China will come and build your railways for you. Right, right. And so, you know, so the, in that sense, there has been a kind of change in the balance of power. And also, I think people's interests feel separate from their ideals in a way that they didn't, it didn't feel like that anyway in the 1980s. I mean, um, one of the interesting, I mean, so uh, Henry Kissinger has just been quoting Margaret Thatcher, and um, uh, one of the interesting things, actually, looking back at that th Thatcher speech was what he left out, which was all the stuff about how the West needs to be an ideal and a, a sort of a guiding, you know, have a, have a moral purpose to it and a moral Yeah, moral Kissinger light. doesn't believe that. I mean, or he, I mean, I'm actually, I'm putting words in his mouth. I don't know what he, what he believes, but I mean, he certainly doesn't talk about that. Um, and that was, of course, um, you know, the, 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 the moral argument about the West was a very important part of politics 25 years ago, um, and it really isn't now. Um, and I think the lack of some kind of idealism or some sense of being part of a common cause, you know, is is at the root of some of the political problems. And it's not the only reason, but it's one of the sources of some of the political turmoil that we've had in the last couple of years. So, so speaking of which, um, you know, you're a citizen of America and of Britain. <laughs> which of them is in a <laughs> is in a worse position right now? Oh, I don't. I mean, you know, one hears depends on what your point of view is. But um, there, I think there is something. Um, it is fair to say, though, that there is something that has gone wrong specifically in the Anglo-American world, um, and that there is some condition that is worse in, you know, London and Washington, which is now making politics more um, more dangerous here than it is in Berlin and Paris. And there, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, and some of them are really just to do with luck. I mean, I think the fact that the election of Trump and the Brexit campaign happened first meant that the, you know, the French, first the French election and now the German election are kind of happening in reaction to that. You know, it's clear that the, one of the sources of the phenomenon of the rise of Macron was kind of French rejection of whatever you want to call the Trump Brexit vision. And by the way, I don't think they're the same thing at all, but that's how they're sometimes seen on the outside. And so the French rejection of that was one of the sources of his success. And so, you know, some of it's just luck. And some of it is to do with the fact that I think Britain and America are, because they were the most global and the most outwardly looking economies, because they were the earliest adapters of, you know, the very disruptive technology of, you know, on the internet, 
Um, you know, they, you know, they invented it. I mean, the United States invented it. And because, uh, you know, social media was the first to penetrate in these countries as well, I think that's had a, you know, a much more disruptive and um, uh, kind of undermining effect on people's, uh, you know, views of American and British institutions uh, than, than before. I mean, there's clearly an economic component to that. You know, however you want to characterize Anglo-American rhetoric, whether we want to talk about free markets or, you know, what, what, you know whatever it is that has been, you know, the, 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 you know, at the core of what British and American governments were offering to people, um, it feels right now like it's not enough. And that's, um, and that's causing a lot of instability. Yes, and especially the idea that, you know, we will, you know, we will open ourselves up to competition. We will, you know, and immigration, and you know, we will be the most. In the British context, we will be the kind of the most liberal country, but we will profit from doing so. And then that contract. And there's a down. feeling that has. I mean, you know, Britain and America are also. I mean, it's you have to be careful because the statistics are not um, actually all that as stark as you would think. But they are more unequal, relatively speaking, certainly than yeah. France. Although and America much more so. Yeah. America much more so. Although even Britain, relative to the continent, is also more unequal. I mean, if you look at the numbers, and again, it depends how you count it and calculate it and so on. That hasn't been considered, a, that hasn't been a political problem in the past, and now it's beginning to feel like it is one. But one thing you said uh, earlier was that you felt that politics in, in Britain certainly had become too, too economic in the sense that it was all about, you know, we will nudge up a, a tax rate by this mm -hmm. point. We will, you know, we will make this tiny tweak, which will save this amount of, this amount of money. You know, the, yeah, no, so this is, this, is a, this is a very clear, you know, I, I've always thought it was, I mean, it's very funny actually even to watch British elections as a kind of semi-quasi-outsider, which I sort of am, um, and to hear how, you know, how much argument there is exactly, as you say, about one point up or down in the tax rate and, you know, will it go up? And people, people historically want more from politics than that. And of course, if we're, you know, going back to Mrs. Thatcher, who we started with, she was able to offer that. I mean, as you heard, you know, her speeches were about, you know, the democracy and bigger ideas and we're part of a big community and we're fighting something dangerous. And, you know, that was a way of pulling people together. It, you know, it's actually a cross-party phenomenon because it's sort of, I mean, um, you can, you can, you can locate some of it in Blair and then some of it is certainly in David Cameron. You know, this focus on economics above all, that the job of the government is just to give people better economic conditions. And of course, that is part of the job of the government, but people want more than that from politics. They want some sense of something bigger, some kind of communal idea, and that's gone missing in, in both countries. Although th there's an argument that, um, that Jeremy Corbyn offers a, a, a version of that, not one that I suspect either you or I would, would particularly agree with, but what he is sort of saying to people, I mean, he is giving them the costed manifesto, and you can imagine a very large pair of air, air quotes around that, but he's also then sort of giving them a, a sort of a vision to, to rally around. No, I mean, absolutely he's offering that. I mean, I think that's, you know, a bigger, some kind of bigger idea. You know, I mean, it's a little bit vague what it is, actually, and some of what he seems to be offering seems to be at odds with what he, stuff he said in the past. But, yeah, he is, he, he's offering some kind of vision of social solidarity, you know, that we are all in this together and it's the 99%, you know, for the many rather than the few, something like that. Um, and that's, you know, that's been incredibly appealing. And likewise with Trump, there is, a, there is a vision, which is, you know, you have been screwed. I am going to stick it to the people who have been screwing you. Yeah, I mean, the Trump vision is, I mean, since Trump is in power, we can see how just how dishonest that was. I mean, I think, you know, my, if I have a, 
you know, my greatest objection to Trump is that he seemed to offer people some kind of hope. And it's, you know, I think it's, it was, it was a contract from the beginning. And I think he never believed any of it. And he has no idea how to, he hasn't even thought about what you would have to do to make people's lives better in the Midwest or whatever it is that, for, for the people who voted for him. Um, so, you know, so in the case of Trump, it was absolutely phony. Um, Corbyn, we don't know because he hasn't won yet. But um, I would, I would worry about him in that in that regard as well. But I suppose Brexit also offered people a. a, a and this, this was my main objection to Brexit was that it seemed to be saying whether it was the 350 million pounds a week that we're going to get for the NHS or some, you know, vision of better Britain, you know, freed from the shackles of Europe and so on. I think it was all, you know, it was ludicrous. And most of the people who were saying that stuff knew it was, um, and that's why, um, you, you know, that's why I. That's, that was the main thing I didn't like about it. Um, and so I worry that there will be a moment when people are disappointed um, and they'll go for some other vision. And of course, it now, I mean, since the only one on offer right now is Corbyn's, that may be it. Yes, which presumably isn't the type of place you'd want to... No, it's not be. where I imagined, um, I imagined Britain going at all. But, um, but you know, you, know you, had the, you have the political options that you're given. And if you don't like Theresa May's vision... And if you don't like the way the Tory party looks and her kind of, she did this attempt at, I mean, sort of very weak attempt at a kind of Tory populism, you know, promoting herself rather than her party, you know, using some language that, you know, if you reject that, where do you go? I mean, you, you either vote for the Liberal Democrats or you vote for the Labour Party. And so lots of people voted for the Labour Party. And if you look at the statistics, you, you know, there's a large, you know, the, the largest group of people who moved from Tory to Labour were people who'd voted Remain in the campaign. And it kind of doesn't work in every constituency, and they each had their own, I mean, I'm telling you stuff you know, and they each had their own rules, but um, it was a kind of disappointment with her that people wanted something else, and there was only one thing on offer. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, so how would you go about fixing this? I mean, 
I wouldn't start from here. I wouldn't start from here, exactly. It's, um, I wouldn't start from here. I Lots of things I wouldn't have done. You know, I wouldn't have had the, the remain, refer I mean, the, the EU referendum in the way that it was and, you know, and so on. Um, you know, so, so you're asking me to start from there. But I think one of the ways to start, at least if we focus on Britain, one of the ways to start would be to start once again offering Britain, uh, offering the British anyway, a vision of Britain in a larger context. You know, what is Britain? Isn't it part of a community of European values? Isn't it, um, you know, aren't there, aren't there things that we believe, you know, that our society is good, things, that, things about our society that we believe is good? Uh, believe are good, um, aren't those things that we should be promoting and standing up for? You know, isn't fanaticism something that we're against? Isn't, you know, kleptocracy and nepotism something that we're against? You know, what are these things? And, and we can find, um, I think we can find, we can certainly make common cause with, uh, you know, continental Europe and with, you know, some parts of the United States in, in you know, rebuilding a sense of international community. I think that will then help give people um, the sense that they're part of something larger. You know, it's not just an economic argument about whether taxes go up or down, but it's a bigger argument about, um, you know, democracy and the rule of law. I mean, that's 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 what I would do. And um, but al but also presumably that can apply internally uh, as well. That you know, if you're talking about being against kleptocracy, you can also then say, we're, you know, yes, I mean, part of that argument should be right. We're going to enforce our own corruption laws, and we're going to stop money laundering in the city. I mean, that, you know, that alone, first of all, I think it would be incredibly popular and why the Tory party hasn't done it mystifies me. We're going to make it so that people who buy houses in London using shell companies and are using those houses to launder stolen money can't do that anymore. You know, so beginning to kind of enforce our own rules. Although there's, there's a counter argument to that, which is that um, what happens if we're playing by the rules and, and no one else is? So that, you know, if, if our defense manufacturers can't bribe, you know, can't, can't bribe foreign governments and everyone else is... So it, it depends what you, you know, again, it depends what you want, you know, what's the point of government and what's the point of your society. I mean, first of all, I'm talking about enforcing laws mostly yeah. here. And I think people do see that, you know, the, the amount of, you know, dirty money washing around London, and it does bother them. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a reason why, you know, people prefer to live in a society that feels like it's run by some kind of higher moral value or some higher standards. Um, and if you do what the Russians do and you say, right, well, actually, everyone's corrupt and we know we're all corrupt. And so, you know, that's just part of life. And, you know, winner takes all and the people who cheat the most get the head the most. I mean, I don't think you build um, a strong political community around that. So, I mean, in a way, having those, you know, OK, maybe you'll lose money by having anti-bribery laws, but you'll do something different. You know, you'll you'll increase the sense of trust that people have in their system. And that's also really important. Changing subjects slightly, I wanted to ask about uh, Brexit and in particular Poland, given your mm. connections there. Uh, this, this week um, we've had uh, Theresa May outline her offer to Polish citizens, which Polish citizens haven't been very happy with. What are they hoping for from Brexit? What, what, is there a way that we can do, you know, do something that, that keeps them on side while still f fulfilling the, the promises that were made to the, to the voters? I mean, well, I mean, first of all, you're going to have trouble fulfilling the promises made to the voters, but that's something different. Um, but in terms of keeping Eastern Europe on side, I mean, you could do it partly by, as I said, making it clear that Britain is still part of a broader European security community, that Britain is still committed to an idea of transatlantic or, you know, if 
given that we don't know which side the United States is on anymore, but given to an idea of European security, you know, that you still feel very much part of that, that you still feel a connection to other European countries and that you understand that, you know, that the safety of Eastern Europe has a has an important economic and political value for the UK. I mean, doing things like that, which so far haven't been done, by the way. I mean, one of the disappointments I have in, in Theresa May is how parochial her government has been and how little she has been interested in, you know, these kind of broader geopolitical questions. I mean, my, you know, the, aside from the lying, my other problem with the Brexit campaign was that it was so focused on economics that it missed these bigger geopolitical issues. And, you know, Britain has, really is at risk of becoming very inward looking, very isolated um, in ways that I think are both damaging to Britain and damaging to Europe. And, you know, one of the ways to overcome that problem would be to to think more broadly and reach out. I mean, uh, Tim Montgomery said uh, he, he, he quite early on, actually. You know, he, he, he was just kind of baffled why May hadn't gone and made a sort of a sort of Thatcher in Bruges style speech about you know, or even you know Blair uh, speaking French to the yeah. French Parliament, just sort of saying you know we are still. still no, your she's done and actually the opposite. I mean, she made a speech about you know if you are a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere, which is the thing that people remember about her. And she's made, you know she spends a lot of time. You know, she attacked at the beginning of the election campaign. She you know, claimed that the Europeans wanted her to lose or something. I mean, she keeps playing them. Um, she keeps playing her, you know, create, making the conflict with Brussels worse uh, rather than better. And she's really done that for the last year. So I don't really have any, you know, great hope that she's going to overcome that. But yes, one of the ways in which she could have both improved the climate of the negotiations and I think also given people in this country some, again, some sense of British grandeur and British history and something to vote for would have been to do exactly that. You know, say, we still want to be a leader on the world stage. We still believe in our ideals. We, we still feel part of European security community. And I think that would have, that would certainly would have made that um, she would have run a very different kind of election campaign. So we've spoken about Russia, but um, what are the other issues that you sort of feel are the, the sort of if, if you're sort of doing your top five list of things that we should really be concerned about or, or worried about or, or excited about? Um, um, you know, well, there are quite a few. I mean, top, you can do top ten. If you <laughs> I mean, look, I, I don't want to by talking about Russia, I don't want to downplay the threat of Islamic fundamentalism and Islamic, in particular, terrorism. You know, it's a it's a narrower threat than the Russian one because, as we, you know, although most people don't acknowledge it or see it, because the Russian one is so comprehensive and it's about undermining democratic institutions, it's in that sense very dangerous. But you know, yes, they think the uh, radical Islam also is fun- profoundly anti-democratic, and we should be worried not only about its effects in terms of terrorism, but you know, why are people finding it appealing? You know, what's the appeal of it? Um, and, you know, one of the mistakes we made after 1989 was to assume that now that democracy has triumphed over communism, that meant that everybody would automatically want to become a Democrat and that the appeal of liberal democracy as an ideal and as a kind of civilization was now, it was universal. It was the natural end state. It was the natural end state and everybody will eventually want to be part of this sooner or later. It's just a question Russia, of, China, it's just a question yeah. of when everybody joins. And I think understanding and taking a step back and understanding that there, there is a profound appeal to authoritarianism and an appeal to fanaticism and that people are attracted to that, uh, I think um, we need to think harder about that and why people in our own societies, you know, people born here find it attractive um, and begin to get to some of the roots of that. And that may be through education and other things. It's not just a security problem. It's also a kind of uh, ideological problem. And you also mentioned... Uh 
on when you're on, on stage the the impact of technology and um, which is obviously both a sort of tremendous opportunity and also a tremendous challenge not least when when Russian hackers are, are involved or whoever it was so who, I, I think we're uh, we are at the stage now thanks to the internet we are at a moment which is very very comprehensive very very comparable to the moment when the printing press was invented you know what happened after the invention of the printing press you know there was this kind of multiplication of narratives traditional sources of authority were undermined. The Reformation happened, which, okay, I know we think it's good here in Britain, but, you know, it was nevertheless incredibly destabilizing. Um, the, the, you know, it wasn't the monks anymore controlling who could read and who could and who could write. It was, everybody could do it, and this led to all kinds of change. And in our own business of journalism today, you know, we, well, no, we, we, we were, uh, ten, 10 years ago, we were the monks. We exactly, had, we had, exactly. We had columns. We exactly, said we, we, exactly. And we are, it's a very similar moment, and it's, I think, equally dangerous, and, and again, in ways that I don't think people have really realized yet. And so the, the the way in which social media works, the way in which people now get and process political information means that traditional sources of authority, not just the media, but also democratic institutions, politicians, political parties have been undermined. And people are finding other ways to connect and sort of reform and make, you know, redefine themselves on the internet. And one of the ways things that's happened is this very profound polarization uh, and partisanship. So people now can, you know, you can now identify yourself, I don't know, as a white Christian supremacist and you will now find a community of people like that on the internet who agree with you and, and you can the more feel you, part of and that. the more you talk to each other the deeper down the rabbit hole you go and the, exactly and the less you hear other narratives and the less you the more you can exclude yeah. uh, other ideas and this you know the existence of these kind of echo chambers or filter bubbles whatever you want to call them has also proved to be kind of uniquely good atmosphere for the spreading of false information um, which is now you, you know almost it's like a disease um, and I think, I mean, in, in many ways, that's the, I think this is less true of the Brexit campaign, but I think absolutely the, you know, the triumph of Donald Trump and the American political system is a reflection of this completely changed political atmosphere. You know, in a way, it was changing in a way nobody saw, um, and that people were identifying themselves differently on the internet, and they were finding different sources of information, and um, he understood that and capitalized on it. Which again leads to the question of whether there's anything we can do about it. I'm I am dedicated now to the idea that there are things we can do about it, but that there isn't going to be one silver bullet. And there are going to be a lot of different solutions. Um, I don't know if you know. I mean, I recently started a little program at the London School of Economics, which is uh, going to be looking at disinformation and trying to do pilot different programs that are designed to you know either expose it or or create better you know alternatives for it. Um, but I think a lot of, you know, there's going to be a combination of media literacy campaigns, of organized efforts to expose false information, but also I think there'll be attempts to change the way the education system works so that people understand the Internet better. And I think after, but I think there will be a long period of turbulence uh, before we come to some new resolution. I remember after the invention of the printing press and the Reformation, it was, you know, several hundred years before we got to the Enlightenment <laughs> and the end of religious wars. And, and, some, is, you know, and even then you get, you get people like Savonola popping up who are using, yeah. who are using these new techniques and in right. the service of things, you know, causes. Right, but, I mean, it, but it took a long time to, you know, for some kind of equilibrium to be reached after the terrible kind of dis, um, and, and disruptive nature of, of, of print media. And I think we're in a, we're in a similar way. You know, another, maybe lesser, but... Also, you know, equally evocative, you know, piece of history is remember what happened after the invention of radio, 
who were the first people who really understood the power of radio? They were Hitler and Stalin. Or Father Coffin in the in uh, US. Right. And it was really, you know, then we had Roosevelt, mm. who also was very good at it. But you know, understanding how to use new media, how to reach people in different mm. ways, um, is something that has been, you know, useful to... Uh, to well, authoritarians yeah. throughout history, but and it's I, just a question. Of, it's just a question of how we learn to absorb and reconcile and overcome some of that. But I suppose, in a weird way, if you're already in power you, or in, in a kind of comfortable position, you don't need to. You don't need to pursue these things. If you're, you know, if you have a column on a on a on a national broadsheet newspaper, or you are in the Senate, and you know, your reporters sort of scribble down everything you say diligently, then you know. There's no need for you to work out as as Trump did. That actually, you can reach an in- entirely different audience via Twitter, via you know appearing on Rush Limbaugh's show. You know all that kind of uh, that is a sort of parallel broadcasting. Apparatus. Yeah, no, no. It, it, I mean, but but um, you know, I don't actually have a problem with the existence of you know alternative media. What I have a problem with is the existence of and the persistence of conspiracy theories and false information, and Trump is just an embodiment of that. I mean, he's a master conspiracy theorist, and he's a master of um, invention of you know, fake stories, and he does this thing of constantly undermining almost everything and everyone around him um, in an incredibly disruptive way that um, I think is going to be, I mean, the mark he's going to leave on American institutions, even if you know, even if he sort of leaves office peacefully, you know, whatever, you know, even if we overcome him somehow and have, have a better person, I think the long-term damage is going to be pretty extreme. Yeah, so, yes, not, not, not the most op- optimistic place to, uh, to end on. But. No, but um, you, you, have to, you, have to, you have to hope for the new enlightenment. You know, you have to hope for the moment when people, you know, begin to see how destructive and damaging the, the current politics are and you and people begin to look for ways to overcome it. So it sounds like, I was going to ask you the same question I just asked Lord Sachs, which is, do you think the, the threats and challenges to the West are primarily internal or external? And it sounds like you're, you're mostly on the internal side with a, with a side well, order think, of Vladimir I, Putin. I, th- I, think they're, um, I think they're internal, but I think that they're external forces who've learned how to exacerbate them. And mm. I would say both um, jihadis, both Islamic radicalism and um, you know, Russian um, sort of anti-democratic, you know, the anti-democratic philosophy have learned how to use Western weaknesses, and that's what we should be most worried about. And is there anything we can do to counter them and you know, to turn things back on them? Sure. I mean, as I said, there is the kind of thousand points of light. There are the organizations that are going to come into existence to fight back. There are, um, you know, there are the, the the reinvention and the reinvigoration of Western institutions. I mean, there, you know, there's a whole category series of things that we can do but first we need to recognize the problem and identify it and analyze it in the right way and i'm not quite sure we've got there yet well on that this is not so optimistic note Anna Fulvan, thank you very much thank you even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.